One, two, there we go. We're live? All right. Great. Greetings. Welcome. <laughs> we ready to get started? Now let's pray. Father, we bless you. We uh, lift this evening before you, and we pray as we open your word, uh, you would speak to our hearts, uh, feed our souls, and may, Lord, we not be the same after we have looked into the mirror of your word, or were before we approached it. Father, I pray for your help tonight to uh, expound what it is that's uh, on your heart through the, in these pages. Uh, speak to us and through us this evening. Um, we bless you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are going to start chapter 6. Actually, we have one verse of chapter 5 to finish, and uh, which there's a, actually a whole lot in that verse. Um, and then we'll jump into chapter 6. As always, um, we're using the, the work of Dr. Wendy Witter uh, through um, uh, Lagos uh, um, Bible software through the uh, Lagos Mobile Education, and highly recommend checking it out, her study on the book of Daniel. So um, for uh, five points, this is an easy one. You know, most of the time when we approach Daniel, most people think of Daniel and Revelation as a key to what? Yeah, key to end times, end time Jesus coming back, looking for a secret key. But when we want to make application with Scripture, what's the first thing we have to do before we make application? Yeah, we got to know what did it mean before, actually, back up, let's put it a different way. Here's a simple phrase. Before we know what it means, we need to know what it meant. Before we know what it means, how we apply it into our lives, how it applies to us today, how we make application now, we need to know what it meant. What did the original author intend? What was he trying to communicate? What did the original audience hear? What was the purposes of the, of the text? So um, we're, our goal is to discover that and then see if we can mine some applications out of that. That's um, the process of process of interpreting scripture, uh, you know, understanding the theology of scripture and and how it applies to our lives. So in Daniel, what we're looking for, what we're going to find this theology is teaching us about God's sovereignty. Um, But it's teaching us through real life questions, real life issues. You know, um, it's it's showing us God continues to care for his people. Uh, It's showing us that through story, we're going to learn these lessons. Um, And why? What's the story? They're in exile. If God's sovereign, how in the world am I in another country serving other kings in a foreign place, living under pagan rulers? How is that possible? If he's continuing to care for me, why am I here doing this in this place? And it's literally shocked them. And so the entire book of Daniel is dealing with these issues theologically, things that we run into every day all the time. Why, Lord, if I'm in this circumstance, uh, how can you be Lord when I'm in the midst of this circumstance? All right. So um, Daniel, the outline of Daniel, um, is it's uh, uh, you, you have first five. Uh, I, that's just five, but it's actually, is it up there? Six. Okay. My screen's different back there. It's six chapters. Um, the first six chapters um, are, are, for the most part, narrative. They're not all narrative. There's some prophecy in there and 
um, but for the most part, narrative, telling stories. And then we get to the second half where Daniel himself is having visions and dreams. So in the first half, he's interpreting visions and dreams for others. God's giving him insight. And then in the second half, he's having them going, Lord, what in the world do these mean? So it's an interesting uh, contraposition of these chapters. And, and this is true about Scripture as a whole. It's super important. We're wanting to understand and interpret Scripture. We look at how these uh, um, how the text we're examining was actually put together. In other words, there's a message in the structure itself, understanding ancient structures. And I, like, I really like this division of the book that Dr. John Lennox put together. Um, and so he takes the, the, the chapters and says, look, if you look at 1 through 5 and you set them in parallel with chapters 6 through 12, you can see um, that there is a correspondence uh, that goes down from chapter to chapter. There's an actual structure here. What do we get in, in, in chapter 1? Daniel is in the Babylonian court. He refuses to eat the king's food. He and his friends are vindicated. This is, we see this in chapter 1. Corresponding to that, and we're going to start this tonight, he's in the Medo-Persian court. And what happens? He refuses to obey the command not to pray to God, or the command, he refuses the command to pray only to Darius, and in the end, he's vindicated. So, but what we're getting is we're getting an introduction to these two courts. It's really important we understand who these two courts are, because these are actually fulfillments of these visions and dreams we get in chapter 2 and chapter 7, right? In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream-like image. In chapter 3, he actually makes an image. Chapter 2, we, we learn about these four kingdoms uh, that are human kingdoms, each a little bit lesser than the one before, that are crushed and destroyed by the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so um, uh, in chapter 7, uh, we get to the four beasts that correspond. It's another way of telling us the same story. So we're going to see chapter 2 repeated in chapter 7, but we're going to get a little bit more information. We're gonna, it's going to be expounded a different way. Um, but what's fascinating to me is now we're back in, we're in chapter 6 tonight, and he's coming into the Medo-Persian court. Well, we're already prophesied about the Medo-Persian court in chapter 2, and so we see prophecy coming to pass in the book. Prophecy is actually coming to pass in the book. So what's that telling the reader? This kingdom of God that keeps getting prophesied is going to come. How do we know? Because God's bringing all these other kingdoms to pass as we're reading the book. It's being fulfilled. So chapter 3, we, get, we, we see this golden image Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace. Um, and they are vindicated in chapter, um, in, so in chapter 7 and 8, I'm sorry, chapters 2 and 3, we have two images. Chapter 7 and 8, we have two visions of beasts. And we'll break down what all these beasts are and what they mean when we get there. And then finally, we have two kings disciplined, chapter 4 and 5. And then chapter 9, and then corresponding to that, chapters 10 through 12, we have two writings explained. And we're going to find out tonight how important the book of Jeremiah is, as well as the other prophets. Daniel draws on oops, the other prophets throughout his writings. And we're actually going to see that tonight. It's going to come out. He's alluding to it. He's expecting us to know the prophecies and, and how they come out in the text. 
So that's another thing. When you're reading scripture, when you're interpreting scripture, the authors make the assumption you already know the other scriptures. Most of the time. Most of the time, the authors are not saying, hey, you know, if you turn over to Isaiah in chapter 51 and you go to this verse, you'll see that this happens and that's what I'm talking about here. No, they'll just allude to it. They'll quote a part of it. They'll quote a part of the story and they expect that you already know what they're, retur- what they're referring to. And so if we don't, that's part of our study. Part of our study is mining that, discovering that, seeing that, and going, wow, this is amazing. All right. That's what I do. I go, wow, this is amazing. I hope that's what you do. So, <clears throat> um, all right. So we, you know, I'm not going to belabor deep uh, summaries. We've done this a bunch. Um, if you are interested in the notes, um, I send them out. Just let me know. Uh, several people got them tonight. I think it's about, about nine people on the list right now. If you're not getting them and you want to get them, let me know. I'll send them out. Again, I'm not going to go into a deep summary here. We've already kind of done a bit of a summary um, uh, just for the sake of time and, and moving into the chapter. But chapter one was um, them moving into exile um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, the... Um, uh, Daniel refusing, Daniel and his friends refusing the food and being vindicated. Then chapter 2, and, and so I do want to hit these, these themes because these themes are going to come up tonight. They're going to be replayed tonight. Um, chapter, the, the theme of chapter 1, that central theme was the providential hand of God is behind all events that happen. How important when you've been sent to exile to know God is still providentially in control. Cool theme to have. And it's an overview for the entire book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at this theme over and over again. Um, We get to chapter 2. Now, uh, important switch, because we're coming near the end of this switch. We switch languages. Unusual. On purpose. Message behind it. We're switching from Hebrew to Aramaic. It's no longer the language of the Jews. It's the language of foreign courts. And where do we find Daniel and his friends? In foreign courts. And so we're going to discover that God is sovereign even outside of Israel. He's sovereign God over all nations, not simply Israel. And it's put together in what kind of a structure is this? We, we have up on the screen. Who remembers? This is worth uh, 26 points. I don't think I use that one much. My kids tell me I use the same numbers over and over again. So I'm... Chiastic, exactly, exactly, it's a chiastic structure. Where in the chiastic structure is the main thrust of the writing in a chiastic structure? This is what, do what? That's right, in el centro, in the middle, en la media, that's right, the middle point. Um, it's uh, uh, right there in the middle, it's, it's, it's where the main point is. So we build to it and we build away from it. In, in this, and we're going to see tonight, we're going to be, and I'll get there, we're in Daniel 6, we're moving away from it. I'm also going to show you something else about this structure that's a little bit cool. So, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, we get the, you know, we already talked about it, the great colossal man with the four kingdoms representing the kingdoms of humanity, and then finally they're destroyed and the messianic kingdom is set up. What's the whole point? The point, this is the, the thrust. The God of heaven is the true source of wisdom and power. He is the true source of wisdom and power. No one else can solve the mystery. No one else understands the mystery. In fact, the mystery came from him. And, and, and so, but not only is he is the true source of it, 
He shares it with us as his imagers and holds us accountable for what he's, what he's given us. And this is another theme. We're going to find out. These kings in the center of this thrust are judged. Why? Because God's given them wisdom. God's given them power. And they don't use it. And as a result, they're judged for it. One repents. One doesn't. All right. So it moved into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is Rakshak and Benny, right? And the, the, the fiery furnace. And the bottom line of the chapter is what? The bottom... Uh, uh, come on. It was working really good. Can you click on the screen there for me? There we go. The bottom line of the chapter is, no matter what, they will not bow down. And uh, if God does not deliver them, so be it. And you remember, this is extremely courageous faith. Why? Because they already put their hands in God's hand to deliver and they hadn't been delivered. Yet, here they are saying, we don't care. We're still only going to serve God. Only He is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of worship. And so what do we get is this courageous faith. That What is courageous faith? It trusts God. It's, it's trust in the Lord in all your ways and lean not on your own understanding. I don't understand why I'm here. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm trusting you. It's not simply cognitive. It's not simply based on what I get out of it. It is faith in God, period, because he's worthy. And so that moves us into chapter 4, and we see Nebuchadnezzar. He actually tells the story himself. This is in the first person. Nebuchadnezzar's telling the story. And, and um, it's, it's the heart of the chiasm. He is the first of two kings that are being judged for their pride. And, and, uh, and what, what is the whole point of the story? It is madness to deny God. He denies God. He takes credit on himself. He ends up with the mind of an animal. He wanders like a, uh, uh, like a, um, uh, a bovine eating grass for seven periods of time until he comes to his right mind and he understands that the power, the grace, and the glory of God is what has been granted to him and he gives credit back to whom credit is due. He, uh, and then he is restored. So it, it is madness to refuse, uh, um, uh, to deny God. See, so notice these themes that we're seeing. God is sovereign. Uh, um, he's the source of wisdom and power. We need to trust him regardless. It is madness to deny him. Do you see the themes? Do you see how they're building? All right. So um, then we're coming to the next chapter we did last week. Uh, can you click on the screen for me? Um, then we came to uh, chapter 5. And we get to the handwriting on the wall. Um, and, uh, and, and what happens in the end is, once again, we see madness for denying God. He's drunk. He's, um, he knows better. He has seen. He knows the story. He's seen what's happening. And he denies it anyway, knowing full well What's on, because he is drunk with his own importance, his own self-importance, his own selfish ambition, his own arrogance. He despises um, uh, what has gone before him and despises Daniel himself. And, uh, and ultimately, it leads to his downfall. But not just his downfall. It leads to the downfall of his entire nation. So the head of gold at the end of chapter 5 is toppled. We get to the end of um, we get to the end of Belshazzar. We get to the end of Babylon, um, and something lesser now comes immediately next. 
But because we see the lesser coming next, we can know that that rock, not made with human hands, will also come. It's leading us to that goal by seeing these steps actually come to pass and unfold in front of us. Now, this is the verse we need to cover. We didn't cover last week. It says, Darius the Mede, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So Darius comes along, and um, he is now going to be uh, leading this kingdom. Um, So Darius the Mede, who is this guy? Who is this Darius the Mede? Um, He he, uh, reigns in Babylon after Belshazzar. The only record we have in him in history as Darius the Mede, the only record we have of an actual Darius the Mede in history is what we read right here in chapters 5 and 6 of Daniel. That's the only historical records. Um, uh, And then we'll see a little bit indirectly about him later. Um, So uh, his reign is starting in 522 B.C. Now, the name Darius is a well-known name for Persian kings. But the problem is, is this is clearly telling us in the text, he's not a Persian. He's a Mede. And he's on the throne in 539 B.C. So here's this guy on the phone in 539 B.C., not 522. And he's clearly a Mede, not a Persian. So, as you can imagine... You get critical uh, um, uh, scholars who come along, and they say, well, we obviously have a, an error here in the Scripture. There is a late author of the text, and he just didn't get his names right. He's misapplying the names. He didn't look through the historical records, probably. But that's odd. Why is that odd? Because he's not a Persian. And if he was misapplying the name, he would have also been misapplying, because if he's looked later and used the later Darius's, all of them were Persians. The author is telling us very specifically, this is not a Persian, it's a me. And by the way, you know, he doesn't earlier, the author earlier doesn't go Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, and Belshazzar, the Babylonian. No, he's using this as a specific descriptor, so he is describing a very specific person. So that, that, that critical um, uh, 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 criticism seems not to hold a whole lot of water here, especially when you see how emphatic he's being. So, who is he? So, it's, it's possible that he is appointed by Cyrus to rule Babylon. We understood Cyrus was the general responsible for overthrowing Babylon. And it's very possible that, um, I mean, Cyrus was the ruler, uh, that, that Cyrus appoints him as the ruler of Babylon while Cyrus is out, you know, conquering on behalf of Persia and doing other things that he would be doing. Now, it could have been one of Cyrus's generals. It could have been uh, a governor from media. There's different possibilities. Um, I like this from the Faith Life Study Bible. Um, this is a quote from Faith Life Study Bible. Most likely, Darius the Mede can be equated with Gub- uh, Gubaru, the governor of Babylon appointed by Cyrus. Uh, Gubaru ruled Babylon for 14 years from 539 to 525 BC and is mentioned frequently in the cuneiform tablets as the supreme authority in Babylonia for crimes committed. Unlike Cyrus or Cambyses, uh, Cam- who were never mentioned in the same legal capacity. So this guy is given an, an exalted title in the historical documents, much like we see Darius. Uh, in the same type of position that not even Cyrus gets as the Babylonian king. Um, Cyrus is the Medo-Persian king. All right. So 
It's also possible that Darius is actually the same person as Cyrus. Now, where would we get this? How do we get this? So um, if you later, we'll get to verse 28, and it says this. So, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persia. So most of our translations are going to tell us it makes it look in parallel like there's two different reigns. So here we got Daniel prospering during Darius's reign and also during Cyrus's reign. Now it's interesting, Dr. Witter put together uh, uh, an, an alternate translation of the text. And she says this is a very legitimate potential interpretation of the Hebrew. It can legitimately be interpreted as Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persia. Cyrus of Persia. So, but the question becomes, how can he be a Mede and a Persian? Because Cyrus is clearly a Persian, and the author says, no, he's clearly a Mede. Interestingly enough, Cyrus had a Median mother and a Persian father. Cyrus was both Median and Persian. Now, why the name Darius? And again, we don't know if, if, if it was uh, a Gubaru, why, would, why did Daniel use the name Darius? I don't know. But it's, we see multiple place, people in antiquity have more than one name. Um, it, that's, a, that's a frequent thing that's done. Um, but why would Cyrus use two different names? We don't know. But there is something really important that could be helpful. And this is what I told you earlier about understanding prophecy. Um, there's multiple prophecies that talk about Babylon falling and falling specifically to media. So Daniel is pointing out that this ruler is a Mede. Why? Because he wants to show the word of God coming to pass as prophesied by the prophets. Now, we're going to look at one particular prophet. We're going to look at Jeremiah's prophecy on this. And again, I'm telling you, there's multiple prophets who prophesied this long before it ever happened. Um, but Jeremiah I want to highlight because Jeremiah is one of the more important prophets to Daniel. He's, the whole thing about Daniel, Jeremiah's 70 years is going to be coming up in future chapters. So Jeremiah is really in the mind of Daniel as we go through this. So take a look at this. This is in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 11. It says, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Notice it says the vengeance for his temple. What was Belshazzar doing the night Babylon was destroyed? Defiling the articles from the temple. And this is prophesied by Jeremiah long before that ever happened. Coincidence, right? <laughs> Recognizing the Median lineage of Cyrus, if, if in fact he is referring to Cyrus as the individual, by recognizing this Median lineage, it demonstrates Jeremiah's prophecy and the prophecies of others. This prophetic word from God is coming to pass. And so, once again, see, it, it helps when you know the other passage in Scripture, and all of a sudden you're reading the story, you go, ah, oh, ah, oh, that's why that's in here. That's why these little details are put. And so when we're looking at stories, when you're looking at Scripture, the, st- the details they include and the things they don't talk about are important. They're not just, just telling a story for the sake of the story. They're not just embellishing the story so it's a good story. They actually all have meaning and purpose in it, which, again, to me, that's just, like, super cool. And I am admitted a Bible nerd. All right, so... Um, Chapter 6, 
uh, what we're going to get into tonight, this is Dr. Lennox's summary of the chapter. Daniel bans, I mean, Darius bans prayer to God for 30 days. To all gods, in fact, uh, except himself. Uh, Daniel refuses to cease practicing the Jewish religion, his, his faith. The court officials have intrigue against Daniel, and Daniel's political loyalty to the king is vindicated. He never stops being politically loyal to the king. He defends that, and he's ultimately restored back to high office. So let's move into this a little bit, introduce it. Um, we're moving towards the end of the Aramaic. This is the last story before we start getting into apocalyptic literature. There'll still be some, when we get into the apocalyptic, there'll be story elements. But this is the last story before we move into that uh, kind of a change in genre. But not, but not the last Aramaic piece. So we're still in the chiastic structure of the Aramaic, okay? So now we're down here, if you see on the bottom, this is correspond- Daniel's faces death in the lion's den. It's corresponding to his friends facing death in the furnace. And we're going to pay attention to that because there's going to be meaning and purpose that's going to come out. I'm going to point some of those things out in a little while, um, how these things actually help us to interpret all that's going on in Daniel, this, this structure, this parallel. Now, I want us to notice something about this movement in the chiasm. I'm pointed this out before step one of the chiasm god has a sovereign plan for the kingdoms of the earth so check that out chapter two daniel the, the dream of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth chapter seven the vision of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth so step one god has a sovereign plan for the kingdoms of the earth that's step one god is sovereign his will is going to come to pass ultimately he's going to establish his kingdom we see that as step one now notice this Step two, God's faithful ones first persecution, even death at the hands of the kingdoms of this earth. In other words, from our perspective living through it, it could very often look like he doesn't have a plan and it's not going to get there. Notice that. Shadrach, Mish, you know, Shadrach and Benny, right? Facing death. The king looks like he's winning. What God can deliver you out of my hand? Tonight, we're going to look at Daniel thrown into a lion's den. For what? His faithfulness to God. It appears as though he's not sovereign. Okay? Step three. What step? Um, so that was uh, back here. What step three? What is it moving to? God's uh, ultimately God judges the nation for their prideful rejection of him. And that's what brings about the rock that we heard about in the beginning that destroys the feet and turns the kingdoms of man into dust. Ultimately, God destroys. And this is the movement through this structure. This is how it moves into it, how it returns back. These are the steps that are being processed as we as we look at this chiasm. This message we're given without telling us this word for word. Does that make sense? It's how the authors are working through the structure. All right. So it's another court conflict. Remember, you, they use this motif of writing in the ancient world. Very popular. We use it today, right? It's part of our epic story. This, um, this court conflict. You get a prosperous hero. He's endangered by a conspiracy. He gains release and he is promoted. Same structure that was used with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same kind of story um, uh, um, structure that was used in, in that story. All right. So um, the outline, how, how this is going to outline, and then we'll, we'll actually go through the chapter. We're going to start off. It's going to give us the setting. Remember, it was the court story, Daniel's success. 
Here's his success. It starts up, you got a prosperous hero, and we're going to learn all about the setting and then the success, and then there's going to be this conspiracy against him. He's going to be endangered, and Daniel's going to be accused and condemned, and then it's going to move to him being delivered out of that, and then Darius is going to have a proclamation, and that proclamation is going to tie to other proclamations. In fact, it's not only going to tie, this is the final story. It's going to sum up all these other proclamations we've seen before. All right, so are you ready? You ready for the story? Let's get into the story. All right, so you can open your Bibles and read it in your translation if you like. I'm going to um, read it, be reading from the ESV. All right. It pleased Darius. Now remember, we, we, we read in the last verse before, Darius is now the king. It pleased Darius to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high, above all the high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Remember, he had the spirit of the gods in him in the other stories. Now he's in Persian court, and we're seeing the same spirit here. Um, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now these, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Bringing up the law of God here. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So now we're going to see, we've got the law, they're looking at the law of God, now they're looking at the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, O king, establish that injunction, this, the injunction, and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. We have the law of God. Now we have the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Hmm. Which one is more absolute? Hmm. This is the question. Which one is more absolute, the word of God or the word of man? Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went down, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not make an did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? 
the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. You notice the repetition here? Then the king answered and said before the, uh, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But makes his petition three times a day. Remember the last time we heard that reference to him being in exile for Judah? It was with disdain, as Belshazzar does it. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Notice, this is a lower kingdom. He's not the head of gold. He's of silver. He's not absolute like Nebuchadnezzar. He has authority he has to listen to. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and slept fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel... And shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not... uh, I think I had that one complete. Did I do that one twice? Yep. Sorry. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and the king that, and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that's our story. This is what we're going to break down. Great story, isn't it? It's like Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody knows Daniel in the lion's den. 
I hope from what we've studied already, you're already noticing some things. You're picking up on some parallels. You're picking up on some of the repeats. There's some themes here that are coming out of the text. And let's see what we can find as we go through this. So um, there are some very fascinating parallels between Daniel 6, this story, and Daniel 3, the chiastic opposition. Right? These are the two chiastic uh, stories that are opposed one another in the chiasm. There's some interesting parallels. What are we? We get jealous colleagues against the Jews, right? There's jealous colleagues against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's jealous colleagues against Daniel that are right here. Number two, um, these kings give in to their jealous colleagues, right? They, they listen to the accusations of their jealous colleagues. They listen to what they have to say, and they give in to them. Number three, God's people are faithful in the face of danger and even death. Both of them show incredible, courageous faith. Daniel demonstrates it in, in, in the fact, and we'll point this out more later, but Daniel demonstrates in the fact that it, it doesn't even phase him. He doesn't even stop his normal. He doesn't like go and hide and pray. He just keeps on doing what he's doing because he knows he's doing what is right before God. And then finally, uh, a parallel is divine deliverance. Both of them are divinely delivered. God divinely delivers in both settings. All right. But as we study, this is what I want you to look for. And we're going to try to find and point out some of these. There are subtle differences between the stories. So the fact that we have all these parallels, when there's a difference, it should jump out at us. Go, aha, there's a point here. There's something trying to be made. The, the similarities reinforce those points. The differences highlight more points. And so we're going to learn some lessons when we kind of look through and see what are the distinctions between the two. All right. So let's first take a look. The first thing we're addressed to is the setting and the decree. That's the first part of the story, first few verses. So we get this thing called a satrapy. What is a satrapy? It's a, it's a division of a kingdom in Persia. This is um, something that the Persians did. They divided their kingdom into satrapies. We know them throughout Persian history uh, from about 522 B.C. Um, there were actually 20 satrapies in Persian history. And so they're governed by a satrap. But um, but when we get here, we see we got 120 satraps. If there's only 20, how, how does that correspond? Well, the word satrap or the title satrap did not only refer to a satrapy. It was also a word that just meant government official. And so when he says they appointed 120 satraps, um, it's more it's like he said appointed 120 governing officials. They could be at all multiple levels throughout out the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is he takes three specific individuals and puts them as administrators over those satraps. So you get Daniel is standing on par as an equivalency with two other administrators. His king has three. And notice in the text, the king did this so that uh, he wouldn't get cheated. He had somebody keeping account on his behalf. Okay? Somebody's making sure everything's being done according to how he wants it being done. All right, but you get these other administrators, those other two guys, they want to kill Daniel. They don't just want him out of office. They want to kill him. They're trying to find a way to take him out. And we also know that they are talking to some others. Um, we know it's not all of the other satraps, but some amount of the others. And he's, they got them stirred up as well. So the question becomes why? Why do they want to do this? Well, there's multiple potential reasons. 
One is that he was plain old jealous because it tells us right beforehand he's about to make Daniel number one honcho over the three. And they don't want him to be over them. Um, now, now, why might they not want him to be over him? Not just jealous for the authority, but um, you tell you know we, we see later where they're using language, right? You know this this exile from from Judah is is ignoring you. So there's there's possibility. I mean, the text seems to point there's some prejudice going on here. There's some disdain for who he is, where he's from, um, and that clear we get clear parallels with that in Belshazzar story in the. Um, uh, other, uh, other, um, uh, the story in chapter three as well. Um, but there's also the, the probability they're crooked. Why? Because the king pointed, appointed them to make sure everything was done decently in order. Well, if Daniel's all of a sudden over them watching them, what they've been doing to line their pockets is going to go away. And so they need to take out the guy that's about to, about to cut off the, their, their, uh, um, uh, their food bank. You know, their freebies. Their corruption. And so all these things, you know, it, it doesn't specifically say, but all these things come into play as we're looking through this from the story, from the little deep, deep little hints and cues were given as we look through the story. All right, so then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole city. That's in, in verse 3. We get on to verse 13. Then the king answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah? There it is. Right? That prejudice coming out. Um, Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes it his petition three times a day. In verse 4, it says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground or complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Does this remind you of any other story in the scripture? Joseph? Yep, absolutely. We get Joseph. How about earlier than that? Do what? You know, clearly Jesus, but how about like one of the very, very earliest stories? Before that, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Abel was exalted by God. He was, why? Because he was faithful. There was no fault found in him. He was doing what God called. God comes along to Cain and says, what's the problem? If you do what's right, notice just him doing what's right highlighted that they were not. And instead of allowing that light to shine in them so that they become of a more excellent spirit, they wanted to put out the light that was demonstrating their darkness. They wanted to put out the light that was demonstrating their darkness. This is how Jesus, the incarnation of the living God, can come to this earth, can stand right in front of human beings, do miracle after miracle, demonstrate who he is in word and deed, in action, over and over again, and people go, you're doing that according to the devil, you need to be killed. And then we wonder today, well, how is it that, you know, there's great, that's called strong delusion. What is one of the themes we've been looking at? It is madness to deny the sovereignty of God. 
This is one of our themes. We see this every day in in life. It is madness to deny the sovereignty of God. So the conspirators, they can't find anything against Daniel professionally. You know, catch this. The guy is literally doing everything right. He's a good guy, so we want to kill him. That's what the story is telling us. All right, but they can't find anything, so what are they going to do? They're going to find something against him personally. And what's the one personal thing that he has in his life that's a distinction and different? Huh? Maybe the thing that makes him so excellent. Huh? You think? Maybe? Maybe the thing that makes him so excellent professionally, this one distinction that's different than everybody else, what is it? The law of God. If we're going to find anything, we're going to have to accuse him according to the law of his God. And so now we get to the main tension of the story. This is what the story is trying to give us the tension. You have God's law. You have the law of the Medes and the Persians. What's it say over and over? It can't be revoked. It can't be revoked. It can't be revoked. Sound like Nebuchadnezzar saying, who can deliver you out of my hand? Sound a little bit like that? This is the main thrust, tension that we're getting in this story. Someone who is faithful to the law of God, that, that through which they demonstrate an excellence in spirit, an excellence in faithfulness, honoring foreign kings, being raised up where he shouldn't be raised up, simply because of the integrity of who he is and living faithful to the living God. And man's law coming opposed to that, seeking to destroy that. So Daniel will have to violate one of the two of them, God's law. Or the law of the Medes and Perch. Okay? He's got to pick one. Now, we all know ahead of time which one he's going to pick. All right? There isn't a question. The tension isn't based around, oh, no, what's, you know, which law is he going to pick? Chapter 1 already told us which one he's going to pick. He entered into the land faithful to God's law over, over the, the, the rules and regulations of the, of the um, of foreign, foreign place. Now, what's interesting is later he claims not to violate either. O king, I have done nothing against you. So, what do the conspirators do? This is what conspirators do. They turn God's law into a threat to state security. Exactly. Look, we understand how it was, what it meant to then understand what it means. But Jesus said the same thing. If they crucified me, what do they think you're going to do to you? If they crucified me, throwing you out of a synagogue, is nothing. But guys, if, if you study the book of Revelation, if you remember anybody that was with us when we studied the book of Revelation, how did Jesus become the lion of the tribe of Judah that conquered the nations and won? He was What? The one image used for Jesus throughout the entire book of Revelation. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. By, it, is the, it, is the, it is the absolute opposite of the way of the world. The way to conquer in the kingdom is the cross. The way to conquer in the kingdom of God is the cross. And what was Daniel's cross? His cross was, I don't really care what your laws are. So this decree, let's talk a little bit about, it's I'm going to follow the law of God. 
Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's the 32 points, Marco. Um, the nature of the decree. Don't pray to anyone uh, but Darius for 30 days. So this is the decree. Don't pray to anyone. Now, um, uh, and you can, we can talk later. I'm not going to get into the weeds on it. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of issues with this decree. It's like, why this particular decree? But I'm just going to hit a few things on it. So if we look at that decree in context of the chapter, in context of the story, Notice, Darius is dismayed at Daniel's guilt. In other words, when he was setting this decree, he he wasn't expecting that anybody would be convicted of it. Now, why? Why why would he? I mean, did did he not know Daniel's religious convictions? Absolutely, he knew his religious convictions. Okay? How does he then... Uh, uh, referred to to God as the one Daniel continually serves. If he didn't know it, he says it to him over one. The one you continually serve. He said before he before he's thrown into the den. I hope the one you continually serve will save you when he's taken out. The one who continually serve you did save you. He continually serve. So the text is telling us Darius full well knew Daniel was faithful to God. So how does Daniel claim to be innocent before the king? My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, there's a contrast here. Remember I said there's some distinctions and differences between chapter 6 and chapter 3. Here's one of those differences, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego declared their defiance. We will not obey you. Daniel's saying, I didn't disobey you. Notice, here's a distinction. Daniel's claiming innocence. So we're not exactly sure exactly what, what was in the decree. It doesn't give us the words of the decree. There's several possibilities of what was in it. Um, actually, we're going to look at it in a minute. Um, but whatever was in it, Darius did not expect Daniel to be found guilty, clearly. He wasn't expecting this was going to be a conflict for Daniel. Um, so what was the decree? So um, was it just an, it literally just an, an egomaniacal lapse in judgment? See, I, I, which is interesting. Do what? It said, what it, specifically it said is that the decree was that anyone, it doesn't give us the words of what the decree was written up. It just summarizes it. And the summary is for 30 days, no one can pray to any man or any God except to the king. It's, 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 a, it's a reference to prayer. It's a reference to prayer. Why? How do we know? Because that's what Daniel did and that's what he was killed for, praying. So let me keep going. Let's, you can bring that up in the Q&A time. Yeah. Um, uh, the, just to kind of answer the, the whole thing, it's clearly about Daniel's prayer that ended up him being put in there. Does that make sense? All right. So political statements supporting um, uh, uh, Zoroastrianism, what is that about? We know from history that the main religion in Persia was Zoroastrianism. This was the state religion. Okay, um, and uh, the um, and so Zoroastrianism was a was a type of um, uh, monastery. In other words, it's a they, you're only to worship this one God. They believed in a, a multiple gods, but you only worship this one. So it's a type of uh, of uh, it's a, a, a monastrous type of religion. Um, but in Persia, 
it was very syncretistic. Religion was very syncretistic. In other words, you had some who would be purists and others who would say, yeah, I'm, I do that, but I also worship this one, I also worship that one, I also worship this one. And so there's a scholar, John Walton, he brings up the fact that there is likely a conflict going on, in a national conflict going on in the nation between those who are purists and those who are syncretists. Um, and that the conspirators are proposing this um, uh, uh that Darius, not that Darius was a god, because once again, the Persians didn't see their kings as gods, but that he was like a type of priest who would be the interceder on the behalf of those who would bring their petitions to him. They would pray to him, and he would be the priest who would who would kind of uh, make sure we are, have our our, um, our religion running right here. And so this became a political statement, this decree. It's very potential that it was a political statement in support of being a purist in their religion as a nation. Um, One of the things that... um, that the the Persians were known for is in their syncretism is that they were welcoming to everybody worshiping all their other religions. And so this could have been a huge conflict. In fact, we see Cyrus is going to later have a decree saying you're set free to go worship your God. And he does that for for others as well, sets people free or, or sends them to worship their gods or invokes the individuals to worship their gods. So um, So they're very syncretistic as a people group. Um, and so, uh, so this kind of plays into here. You get some religious tension within the nation. Whatever it is, the conspirators actually apply pressure to the king. Now, I saw a little, another little parallel. What's going on in here? In, in my mind, a potential parallel. Um, one of these themes is this arrogance and this madness that leads to these choices and decisions. And what do you get? You get this king that says, oh, yeah, let me be at the center. Oh, yeah, okay. And he, and he once again allows this arrogance and this madness to, to lead him into a bad choice and decision. This is another kind of a sub-theme we see playing out here. Um, but they apply – but what, what do the conspirators do? They say, they say what? They say every official desires this decree. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whosoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So, um, is it all of them? No. Who's obviously not one of them? Daniel! One of the three highest officials. Oh, but O king, all of us agree. Conveniently leaving out uh, somebody, you know, kind of important. Interesting. All right, so let's look at the accusation. We're going to move now to the next part of the story, the accusations and the condemnation. Um, so what was Daniel's response? I love Daniel's response. It says he knew, when he knew it was signed, what did he do? He went home and prayed as he always does. It literally had no effect on him according to the story. According to the story, he went, and he doesn't go, oh, I better go pray in the closet. Oh, I better go find a prayer. I better close my window. Oh, I better not, you know, for 30 days I'll be doing something else. No. He goes, hmm, that's interesting. Goes home, gets on his knees, and bows towards Jerusalem. He continues. He does it, he does it three times a day. Now, we're supposed to make another connection here. This is another place where, where if you know your scriptures, 
uh, the, Daniel is referring to other things in the scripture uh, in bringing in this story so that we can see what's going to come future in the book. Okay, this is some foreshadowing of what's coming. So where does Daniel, when he goes and he bows before his window and he's praying, to what city is he praying toward? Is that arbitrary? Absolutely not. If we go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon just built the temple. And he has dedicated the temple to the Lord. And Solomon has this lengthy prayer in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read several passages from it. Now, check these passages out and how relevant they are to where we are in Daniel and to what's going on, which will give us a clue and a hint because it tells us what he's doing. It, it's likely what he was praying. Because it tells us what he's doing, it's likely what he's praying. And we know for a fact it's, it is the theme for which he prays when we get later again in the book. So then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept your servant David, my father. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled its day. Jumping down to verse 28. Yet you yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open. Night and day towards this house. The house is a, a, a euphemistic way of referring to the temple, by the way. Um, the temple is called the house in multiple places in Scripture. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. What's he doing? He's facing towards that place, offering his prayer. What does Scripture say? That God will listen as he does. Listen and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, and when you hear, what? Forgive. Hmm. Praying towards Jerusalem. That not when you're praying toward this place, you're also praying where? Toward his place in heaven. Seeking what? His forgiveness. Hmm. Yet more. Jump down to verse 33. And when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When you've sinned and they've taken you out and they turn to, and you turn towards you and they pray here toward this place, forgive them, bring them back. What's Daniel doing? This is 539 BC. He was taken out in 605 BC or 603, 603 BC. This is, this is decades later. And he's still in his continual practice three times a day coming to the window, calling on the God of heaven. 
If they sin against you, verse 46, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the, uh, in the land to which you, they have been carried captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned, and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive, and prayed to to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. What's the one thing you've seen towards Daniel over and over again? The compassion, the compassion. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. So I just chose a few passages. Go back and check the whole prayer out. It's amazing. But I just really want to point out this, this because Daniel's alluding to this prayer. It's alluding to it by what he's doing. He's in a captive. What is he doing? He's living a repentant lifestyle. He's living a faith, faithful lifestyle. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's good. In the midst of the iron furnace, yeah. That's another connection. That's good. Yeah, being delivered out of that. All right. So um, this demonstrates what? Daniel's faithfulness to God's covenant. He knew the decree was aimed at him, most likely. I mean, he knew full well. Uh, but he didn't change a thing. For, for him, nothing changed. Do you catch that? I want us to think for a minute. I mean, I actually conceived that for a minute. They just passed a law right now. They make a, a, a constitutional amendment. Thou shalt not pray to Jesus. Thou shalt not worship the Lord thy God. Are we running around panic? Like, are we just going, whatever. I mean, this is what's coming out of the story. Think about how the story is being presented here. This is pretty amazing. God is God no matter what. We're in that interim step. He will, uh, in Daniel, what? He will worship God even though everything he once knew was destroyed. Notice, everything he came from was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The land was kicked out of. All of that. But what wasn't destroyed? His faith, but his faith in what? Not, not simply God. It is his faith in God. What? It was God's sovereignty, but how did God preserve his sovereignty for them to continue to see and know it? This is a really, really important distinction to pick up. This is what makes... Israelite religion distinct and different than all the religions in the world at the time. It was about what? Instead of the land. Well, their heart trusting in what? What what promises? Yeah, and where were those promises?
Yeah, written down promises. The word of God lasts. It doesn't matter what changes on earth. This is a distinction. In the ancient world, if you lost your land, you lost your God. He is weak and impotent. What God is demonstrating is, my word stands forever. Period. Uh, uh, those who are trusting in my word will be trusting in, in what will last. This is how J- the word of God uh, tells us that the word became incarnate. In the beginning was the word. When it says, when the beginning was the word, that word was means past tense. That means before the beginning, the word existed. In the beginning, the word already is there. In the beginning, the word was with God and was God. And there is nothing that is made that wasn't made through the word of God. Hebrews says that the very existence of life hangs on the word of God. The the word of God is more real, more concrete than the concrete we're standing on. Because when the upheaval of this world causes this concrete to shake, the word of God doesn't change. And this is what Daniel understood. He's trusting in and it's giving us clues and hints all throughout. In fact, the second half of the book, we'll be seeing it. So the conspirators were confident because Daniel was faithful. What were they confident? That he's going to demonstrate. They knew their plan was going to work. Oh, this is going to get him. We know. We know. He, he's, he's going to follow it. He's going to follow it. Right? All they had to do was sit back and wait. See how smart they are? So they thought. The world looks pretty cunning. I mean, it was a great idea. If you want to try and get him accused, it wasn't a great idea for, your, you know, if you want to lose, keep your own neck. But anyway, that's coming. They were smart. They're not lacking in intelligence is the point. They're not stupid. They're not idiots. They're smart. They're intelligent. They're scheming. They're cunning. They knew this was going to work. They were confident. And as soon as Daniel is faithful, they go straight to the king and they go, hey, look, you know, this works. And, and, and the king tries to find a way out, right? He's, he's, he's no longer the head of gold. He's the chest of silver. He no longer has the ability to change at his whim. He is subordinate. Notice the word of God coming to pass. These kingdoms are changing in value. He's not absolute. He's subordinate to his own laws. Um. So, here's a contrast for us. Darius the king, who's the king of, a, of a, an empire, has no ability to save. He's like all night long trying to figure out, how can I save him? How can I save him? How can I save him? But God does. We're meant to see the weakness of the king versus the strength of God. This is the picture. The weakness of the king who can decree a law that can't be changed, quote unquote. Versus the strength of God. The other thing we're contrasting, we said this already, is the goodness of God's law. God's law is good. Versus the malicious intent of the king's law. It was intended to do evil. This law was put in place with the specific intention to do evil. This is another contrast we're meant to see. It's, it's the goodness of God being contrasted with the evil intent of man. Now, what's interesting is um, when Darius throws Daniel into the pit, what is his hope? 
He hopes God will save him. Now, this is one of those little points. Remember I told you some of the distinctions between this chapter and chapter 3? This is one of those. Nebuchadnezzar is like, no God can challenge me. Y'all are in the fire. Darius is like, oh, my God. May you be saved. Oh, my Lord, save him. You know, he's calling out and invoking Daniel's God to save him. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is over here saying, hey, ain't nobody that can save. You know, so this is, this is, um, this is a point. This is a, a furthering of the story we're meant to see as, as we come through this, a distinction. Darius is pleading that Daniel's God will deliver him. But if you do not, this is in Dan, this is Daniel 3.15. This is back in chapter 3. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar says, right? What does Darius say? Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. See the contrast? All right, now let's compare something. This is kind of cool because I don't know how many, some of you might have picked up on this. Um, so it tells us in verse 17 that a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the, uh, of the den And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Everybody catch that? That was part of the story. Remember that from the story? They put a big old stone in front of what was meant, what was that den meant to be for Daniel? His tomb. A stone is rolled in front of his tomb and it's sealed with a signet. Where do we see that language? It is not by accident that we read the the uh, um, writers of the gospel say Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. In verse 65, Pilate said to them, to the Jews, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Interesting. Interesting. So Daniel is a type of Christ in this story. This is a type of death burial and resurrection he will be resurrected from the dead like like um like uh isaac in the um the 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 akedah right when when he is sacrificed by abraham he's a type of christ he's raised from the dead he's brought back this language is uh used and it's actually used in another place we'll look in a minute so the deliverance let's look at how he's delivered so daniel darius is sleepless he's worried about daniel all night at first light catch that language here's the language right here when does he go? At first light. What does he do? He runs to the den. He runs to the tomb. I mean den. Right? Same language as we see in the resurrection stories. Uh, he calls out to Daniel. And he's referring to God the whole time as you do this. Check this out. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. When? The first, toward the dawn of the first day, first light, Mark 16. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Check out Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. Same language. They're borrowing these motifs, these pictures. They want us to think about this picture 
as we go through this. Um, those who sought to destroy Jesus, his enemies who conspired, who used the laws of man against him. He sought to be king like Caesar. What does he deserve? He violated Roman law. And you're blaspheming our law. And, and what ultimately happens? The resurrection. Darius, unusual. Now, this is really interesting because Darius is a Gentile king. Now, we are familiar with, you know, the living God. We call him the living God. He's the living God. But for Darius to use that title, that's an unusual thing. Gentile kings would not refer to the God of Israel as the living God. It's a title that's used by faithful followers. It's faithful followers who refer to him as the living God. Not polytheistic Gentiles. He's a polytheistic Gentile, yet he's referring to God as the living God. Um, and so there it is. I won't go through it. But now, interestingly, uh, uh, com- uh, uh, um, juxtaposed to that is how Daniel says, O king, live forever. Now, it's not unusual to hear, O king, live forever. But um, uh, it's the very first time in the entire book that you see a Hebrew say the phrase. Even when Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar in his, when he's, um, um, you know, being familiar with him in chapter 5, when, you know, you can tell there's a closeness, he doesn't say, oh, king, live forever. He says, may this not be against you, may it be about your enemies, all these other things. But he's not referring to him as king, as king living forever. So this, this, this is like, it's proper protocol, but not proper for one of the Hebrews to say. So there's something being communicated to us by these two characters speaking in a way that is uncharacteristic. What is common between these phrases? They're both about life. The living God, O King, live forever. It's a reminder that God is the God of life. This is a resurrection motif. It's a resurrection motif. God is the God of light. You're, a, you're the, God, the, the living God. He has saved you from the lions. O king, live forever. He's referring to eternal life. Um, all right. So what's the, there's a contrast here. Where, what do we got here? There we go. There's a contrast here. Daniel's statement to um, uh, 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 Belteshazzar in the last chapter. Um, when he's talking to him... Uh, Hang on, let me see what I got here. I'm looking at how much I got and what time it is and what I want to cover. So... So I'll just hit this real briefly. If we look at this, what is what is Daniel saying to to Darius? I mean, to Belteshazzar about uh, in, in this passage? He's saying your hand. What is what is held in the hand of God? Your life is held in the hand of God. This is the, again. This is the common motif that's going on here. He's the living God. O King, live forever. Your life is held in the hand of God. So Darius ultimately places his hope in Daniel's God. He's placed his hope in it. The only hope he has for Daniel's life is Daniel's God. Um, 
And now this story follows, there's another motif that's being followed here. It's called an ordeal. This is an ancient Near Eastern motif called an ordeal. And in, in an ancient motif, we've seen this motif before, right? Um, it's when uh, it's, we're going to determine whether or not you're guilty or innocent. We're going to let the gods to say whether or not you're innocent or guilty. And so what we're going to do is we're going to put you through some kind of a tortuous test. And if the gods are on your side, then the gods are telling us you're innocent, you'll live. But if you die after we did something tortuous to you, you die, well, then the gods are telling us that you were guilty. All right, and this is an actual type. This is a motif, a type of story, and so this story is actually being used to actually demonstrate God does show up. He does shut the mouth of the lions, and Daniel is innocent. Um, now compare this. What does Daniel say shuts the mouth of the lions, or who does Daniel say shuts the mouth of the lions? An angel. Now it does. The story doesn't say we saw an angel on that, but that's is what Daniel says. Daniel says an angel shut the mouth of the lion. What do we, who's the fourth man in the furnace? An angel, one like the Son of God. We see a divine being. In both cases, we have this divine being. Um, and now, uh, this might be disturbing to some. How many were disturbed when they're like Darius is throwing like their whole family into the lion's den? Uh, you know, to us, that's our sensibilities. In the ancient Near East, they would have expected that to be what would happen. That is exactly what they would have expected to happen. You go in there, your whole family goes in there, and in fact, we actually see this in the scriptures. How many remember when, um, uh, cannot remember his name, it just went out of my head, the, the, the Israelite who hid the um, treasures that he, in his tent before they went to, to fight against Ai in the book of Joshua. Achan, thank you, Achan. Separate yourself. And he's there with his family and the ground opens up. Doesn't just get him, it gets him, it gets his whole entire family. And and here's the point. It's the point we saw with Belshazzar. Bel yeah, Belteshazzar. No, Belshazzar. Um he fails and he loses the whole kingdom. Our lives do have an effect on others. Do what? Yeah, our lives have an effect on others, period. Our lives have an effect on others. Um, all right, so we're at the very end here, the doxology and the conclusion. So the doxology, that hymn of praise that, that Darius gives at the end. Um, and so let's compare. When, when Nebuchadnezzar finishes his dream, Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, at the end of that whole dream story, Nebuchadnezzar says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So God's the revealer of mysteries. After the fiery furnace, what does Nebuchadnezzar say? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, delivered his servants who trusted him, set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So after the... Um, the bovine experience, what does Nebuchadnezzar say? At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So we see him doing miraculous works in the last one. This time now he lives forever. He has an everlasting dominion. Um, in in uh, Daniel 4, I'm going to keep going from there. In um, uh, Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall. What does he say? 
This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. So what's God doing? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Um, after the lion's den, uh, this is the decree. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, People are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. There it is again. What does he do? Endure forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. What does he do? He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Notice in this doxology, as short as it is, it literally summarizes all the key themes from the first half of the book. All the key themes are summarized in one place. God is indestructible. God is eternal, comparing to the dream, comparing to the bovine humbling. God performs signs and wonders, the handwriting on the wall, the bovine experience. God rescues and delivers the fiery furnace. The summary literally takes all the difficulties that that are going to be coming up later on that he's going to be talking about and sets us in a place where we're prepared to hear them. Because we understand the character and nature of God. It's like this chiastic structure. God has a plan. He's going to happen. But that doesn't mean there won't be difficulty for the people of God on his way to bringing it to pass. That doesn't make him any less all of these things. And so, um, in the end, God's truth is fulfilled. Only God prevails. And only his kingdom endures. In the end, God's truth is fulfilled. What he said in his word comes to pass. Only God prevails, and only his kingdom endures. And so thus ends chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. Let's pray, and we'll we'll close out. Father, uh, uh, we bless you. We thank you for this time to, to study this together. I pray that we are moved by your word, by your spirit. We are moved by the example of Daniel to be faithful because we have a grasp and an understanding of who you are. We are not moved by the world, what the world says and what the world does. But we are moved by you, that your word is eternal and we can trust in it. It doesn't matter what we see. It matters what they will see. And may we have already seen it so that we might live it, communicate it, reveal it, be faithful to you in it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me know when we're turned off and um, we can uh, you know, chat for a minute or two.